I'm Bill Lawrence, and this is my Big Bag of Onions. They got from Maine to California, broken hearts and bars unknown. And through this night we'll share a lover On that dark radio Had a soul made me so lonely Hands pressed cold against the phone The young stars Civilians are advised to stay in their homes. Evacuations are currently taking place in the London area. All motorways and airports have been closed for military use. Non-essential telephone lines have also been temporarily disconnected. Please stand by, and await further information. On Facebook, when you log in as a user, you are brought to a home page that displays your top news feed. The top news feed is a stream of information from your Facebook social connections, including your Facebook friends, Facebook groups you've joined, and Facebook pages that you've liked. Not every piece of information posted by every one of your friends is included, though you have access to that through the most recent news feed feature. But since the top news pops up as the default for users when they log on, that's one of the first things they see and is their main source of information. The brilliance of Facebook's newsfeed is that it serves you individualized content based on three factors. One, how recently the content occurred or was created. Two, the strength of your relationship with the person or organization who shared the content. Three, how many comments and likes the content generates. Most important for marketers to consider is number three, as it directly affects whether or not a company's content will be seen in the user's news feeds. The more people who are interested in the content, or the more people who have had a positive experience with a product or service relating to the content, the more likes it will receive, and the more prominent it will be in the feed. We use a diamond ring graphic to better explain Facebook's edge rank or newsfeed algorithm in plain English. Anything posted on Facebook, be it a status or general update, a link to another site or a video is considered an object. Ed, what's the name of this uh, radio program that I've been making? I don't know. Bill's Big Bag of Onions. Bill's Big Bag of Onions. Are you sure? Yes.
In the North Sea, wind power is booming. At the moment, the world's biggest offshore wind farm, with a capacity of 630 megawatts, sits in the Thames estuary. But the London Array, as this farm is known, will not hold the record for long. Another farm, over twice the size, is under construction off the coast of Yorkshire. Of the six countries with the most installed offshore capacity, five are part of the North Sea's littoral. The exception is China. Bloomberg New Energy Finance, a research firm that keeps a close eye on the industry, reckons the world's offshore wind generation capacity will quadruple by 2025. Given the need to cut carbon emissions, that is welcome news. But just because wind turbines produce little carbon dioxide does not mean they have no environmental impact. In a study posted on the Archive, an online repository of scientific papers, Kyla Slavik and her colleagues at the Helmholtz Centre for Materials and Coastal Research in Gistakt, Germany, explore the effects that the turbines might have on local wildlife. Look here, you're listening to Bill's Big Pack of Onions. The frequency of non-specific nouns, words like thing, something, anything, as well as filler words like um, well, so, basically, actually,
starting a movement is easier for a cause, a mission-related nonprofit group, or a government organization. But you should never underestimate the potential of any passionate community united around beliefs, commonalities, or shared interests. One such group online is moms, who in general love to share with one another. StrideRight is a leading shoe brand that makes and distributes footwear for babies and children across the United States. The company's shoes are sold through retail locations as well as online. But in 2009, it decided it wanted to build a more engaged community on Facebook. StrideRight knew it already had a strong brand that many people were familiar with and loved. The bond between customers and the brand was good, but in order to build an engaged community, StrideRight had to leverage stronger bonds between mother and baby and between fellow moms. This required an initial shift in strategic thinking from the company, as it would have to make the community a lot less about its shoes and more about the kids wearing the shoes and their moms than they had ever originally planned. The online conversation started strong in late 2009, and frankly, it hasn't slowed down at the time of this writing. More than 70,000 fans have joined the community at facebook.com/strideright. The vast majority of whom are young moms. If you visit the page on any given day, you'll see customers talking with each other and with the brand. Usually, not even about shoes, but about their kids and babies. This is another one of those big bags that Bill has filled with onions. Section. It's not here in Metropolis, but we got three lovely men. 
Moving to America was both exciting and frightening, but we found great comfort in knowing that my father spoke English. Having spent years regaling us with stories about his graduate years in America, he had left us with the distinct impression that America was his second home. My mother and I planned to stick close to him, letting him guide us through the exotic American landscape that he knew so well. We counted on him not only to translate the language, but also to translate the culture, to be a link to this most foreign of lands. He was to be our own private Rosetta Stone. Once we reached America, we wondered whether perhaps my father had confused his life in America with someone else's. Judging from the bewildered looks of store cashiers, gas station attendants and waiters, my father spoke a version of English not yet shared with the rest of America. His attempts to find a water closet in a department store would usually lead us to the drinking fountain or the home furnishing section. Asking my father to ask the waitress the definition of sloppy joe or tater tots was no problem. His translations, however, were highly suspect. Waitresses would spend several minutes responding to my father's questions, and these responses, in turn, would be translated as, she doesn't know. Thanks to my father's translations, we stayed away from hot dogs, catfish, and hush puppies and no amount of caviar in the sea would have convinced us to try mud pie.
The street in front of our hotel was by day a boring concrete hotel front on a boring concrete street. By late afternoon it came alive. Tables and chairs appeared, loudspeakers were hung on the wall and screechy music drowned out the street's background noises. White-robed, hooked-nosed, turbaned men came to sit, hooker pipes were being lit and soon the smell of strawberry-flavoured tobacco wafted on the cool breeze. At dusk, a pickup truck would ease past with a giant fan and large steel bottles loaded behind it. The fan whirled and bottles were opened one at a time. This mega bug killer was the reason that there were no flies in the city. No birds either. I felt depressed and sat down at one of the tables. Sally's convalescence and the paper chase had eaten far too much time. My visa for Ethiopia had expired. But in a way, luck was still with us. We all had new visas, but the trouble was, they were stamped for entry by air only. Was the chance for riding through Ethiopia really gone? I didn't want to fly, I wanted to ride. My neighbour took a puff on his pipe and passed the long-stemmed mouthpiece across to me. You look as if you need this, my friend. I decided to chance that there wasn't anything dodgy in the mix and took a long puff. The water in the bottle bubbled furiously. Strawberry tobacco. I relaxed with a little head rush. I'd given up smoking two years before. It's your Bill's big bag of onions. i 
I spoke to two survivors of kamikaze missions. Um, one of them was supposed to go, but his turn never came and the war ended and he was gutted. The other person, his engine uh, malfunctioned, so he had to come back. And it was very interesting because they were, their views were completely almost the opposite. So uh, the guy whose engine malfunctioned, he said he never wanted to die. He didn't want to volunteer, but on paper he was considered to have volunteered because you know, he was asked in a big group of him and his colleagues that his unit is now a kamikaze unit. And if anyone had objection that he didn't, they didn't want to go, then they could put their hands up. And, you know, as a, as a young soldier trained to fight for the country, no one could be, I guess, brave or no one could be honest, even if they didn't want to die, to say that they didn't want to volunteer. So he was really happy that he survived, even though he was a bit worried about how it might be perceived by others. So, you know, his view is that despite, contrary to what many people today think, many pilots who died actually didn't want to die. That was his view. Jump out of the cupboard Before someone gets suspicious Or someone gets discovered You can live forever In a split second of fame Come on down, the price is right What's your name? While a crocodile makes good shoes And a dog may change his coat I can change what's written On your face tonight And I quote Oh, I wish you could see Quite how much you could mean to me You were blessed You were ten feet taller And almost handsome I might bear this king's ransom You were blessed They commit blue murder along Union Avenue Then they sell you souvenir matches Nightclubs full of grave robbers from Memphis, Tennessee And Las Vegas body snatchers And he's carrying a warning Can't you see how his eyes glint? Keep your bloody hands off my life, you're affectionate Fingerprints Oh, I wish you could see Quite how much you could mean to me You were blessed You were ten feet taller and Almost handsome, I might pay this king's ransom. You were blessed. All the cars and girls and girls who tore his shirt to tatters. Do you know how tall he was? Cause that is all that really matters. Do you know his mother's last name? Do you think that he's divine? You've seen the film, you've read the book, you're drinking vintage Jones, Presley wine. Tiny mind, why life is twice as large They'll cut it down to size on television She's available and beautiful But with more time to devote They're gonna take this cable now And stick it down your throat This is an obituary It should be right and fitting for Every clockwork pattern conceivable Kitten basic axiom of resource economics is that we overconsume goods that are underpriced. Since the market is more efficient than governments at allocating scarce goods, it follows market prices should be charged for water. This would promote conservation and more efficient use of scarce water resources by making waste expensive. Perhaps surprisingly, the plight of the poor actually reinforces this argument. 
The fact that the very poor do pay for water, and pay quite a bit in relative terms, suggests both that they could and would pay for pipe to water. Thus, the principle of full cost recovery, charging a price to cover all the costs of investment as well as profit, has seemed both possible and desirable, but also risky. Private operation of a water system may provide the capital necessary for maintenance and upgrades, yet it requires amortization periods that can run several decades for the investments to pay back. A long-term return on investment also requires general economic, political, and social stability over that period. In many developing countries, this is far from a given. Hence, the difficult challenge. Privatization may hold the greatest social potential in developing countries because it can inject needed capital. Yet, it is in precisely such settings where investment environments are least certain. The immediate concern that can arise with full cost recovery is one of inequity. If water access is based on ability to pay rather than willingness to pay, then what are the implications for poor and marginalized communities if water prices rise? Oi oi, you're listening to Bill's Big Pack of Onions!
Of all the words Americans have borrowed from the English, words with little cultural congruence, words that make them sound pretentious or silly or both, see cheers. It is surprising the words that have been missed. Words that chime with the American character and would seem right at home. Words that would not make an American sound as if he or she had just returned from a junior year abroad. One such word is Moorish, an adjective describing the quality of certain foods that makes one want to keep eating them. But you wouldn't say that sous vide pigeon with morale reduction is really Moorish, even if you thought so. Because this word is really more about movie popcorn, salted peanuts, chocolate-covered raisins, malted milk balls. No word implies the hand in the snack packet quite like Moorish. So why don't Americans have this word? No one out snacks an American, or so I thought, before moving to England. The English are great snafflers. To snaffle is to eat something quickly and sometimes without permission. Snaffling is what you do with the last brownie in the break room or the chocolate-covered biscuits that you bought for the children. Snaffling is to the kitchen cabinet what foraging is to the wilderness. Look here, you're listening to Big's Big, to Bill, Bill's Big Bag of Onions.
people were very pro-empire. This was because it had been sold, and in many ways accurately, as uh, a means of civilizing countries in particularly in Africa, where all sorts of terrible unchristian things happened among people, where we were exporting British values. We were exporting, for example, British justice. We were exporting Christianity. We were exporting the British way of life, if you like. And this was deemed to be a very good thing because we considered ourselves to be a, a, an advanced democracy, which in relative terms we were. At home, it was viewed not just as a good thing, but it was something, it was a service, if you like, that Britain was performing uh, for the world. But it was also something that was, it was a very noble thing to go and serve. And, you know, children's comics, such as The Boy's Own Paper, existed to extol the idea that going and doing some form of imperial service, whether it was joining the army or the navy, or even joining the imperial civil service and going to be an administrator in India, or in some part of Africa, or pioneering, going out to settle and you know, expanding the idea of the British race, as it was then called, in places like Canada and South Africa, uh, Australia and New Zealand. These are all deemed to be very good things. And we felt very good about empire, but there was always that small progressive group of politicians who were not imperialists. Most of them in the Liberal Party and almost everyone in the Labour movement thought imperialism was wrong. And their voices would be increasingly loudly heard after the First World War. It's nothing boogie tail on They say I'm different cause I eat shit lens And I can't help it, I was born and raised on a That's right, every morning after slop the hogs And they be getting off humping the jolly To baby king and Jimmy Ray Rock on that And that's why They say I'm different And that's why They say I'm strange I'm talking about Big Mama Pop Talk about it, talk about I'm it I'm Lightning Hopkins Talk about it, talk about I'm it talking about Let's 
The knock on my door was persistent. When I opened the door, a tired-looking, thin, gaunt-faced figure with disheveled hair stared at me. Her clothes hung from her body and she defiantly scowled. She seemed to be in her early twenties. Beside her stood a woman I barely recognized, Mitty, an old acquaintance I hadn't seen in sixteen years. After the women settled on the living room sofa, Mitty said she was now living in a city sixty-five kilometers from my town. Somehow she had found me. Mitty revealed that the woman with her, Mona, her younger sister, who sat passively and stared at her toes, had attempted suicide a few days earlier. Mona had consumed insecticide but had survived. Mitty told me she now spoke to no one and refused to eat. Mitty left after an hour. To my shock, she walked out without Mona. I assumed she would come back and take Mona home. But hours passed and Mitty didn't return. The hours turned into days. Mitty never returned for Mona. I was not prepared for this shock. I was too stunned to even think. In my town in India, we didn't have a crisis center or a suicide intervention program or a women's shelter or even Alcoholics Anonymous or a psychiatrist. What on earth, or rather what in heaven, was I going to do? Every morning 
for another journey through the pleasures of music, words, and sound. We see you. Bill's Big Bag of Onions has been produced and directed by Adrian Cohen and is a guppy production for Cone Radio.